Thanks, Rob. So uh, let me just say this. It's a privilege to be here at Well of Life, but it is a Friday. And that's church for you guys, but that's my off day uh, back home. So if I say anything that doesn't make any sense, go to the Connect desk. They will figure it out for you. They'll help you. But it's, it's great to be with you guys this morning. Uh, like Rob said, to have a team from Well of Life come down to Cape Town was fantastic. We had a great time together. I took personal joy in shooting Sajid and Rob and Burgess at close range with a paintball gun. And I don't know why it gave me so much satisfaction. They're fantastic men, but they're not great at paintball, that I can say. We had lots of time down there. It was, it was, it was good. Rob, you were on my side, so you don't even know. You don't even know, right? We did, we did see each other in the end anyway, even though we're on the same side. Let's pray together. One of the dynamics about Rob was, was saying, this, thinking about finance is not necessarily any preacher's first thought. But I honestly believe that in the heart of God, this is an assignment from heaven for us. And I want to ask that God would do way more than I can bring through words. Look at that. It says financial freedom. Versus when he was chatting to me, he actually used the word stewardship. And I felt like freedom financial freedom was what I wanted to speak about. And that lady brought a prophetic word this morning that some people are in jail. While I was busy preparing, I felt like God was saying that he was wanting to unlock some, some doors and he's wanting to create some opportunity for people to come out of the very stuff that is restricting and holding back and locking people, imprisoning people. God wants to bring us into his freedom. For freedom, he has come to set us free. We're going to speak about that, what God wants for you, not from you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this beautiful gospel that we subscribe to, that we understand, that we believe, that we place our only lives, we bank our only lives on this gospel. God, it's a gospel that is upside down and inside out. We don't always understand it, that we would see life coming to us through your death, that we would see us gaining so much as we give, that we would find ourselves as we lay things down, we truly pick them up again. As we give of ourselves, Jesus, we receive so much. God, this is the glory and the wonder and the beauty of your upside-down, inside-out gospel. And I pray, God, today that you would impart something to Well of Life Church this morning. Won't you do more than we can ask or imagine? Holy Spirit of God, won't you work in this place? May I be a faithful sent one this morning to bring your word and to serve you, King Jesus. We give ourselves freshly to your principles and to your word this morning. Amen. So, before I get into God's word this morning, let me ask you a very big question. Whether you know it or not, you have spent a lot of your life trying to understand the answer to this question, and you've spent even more of your life chasing after the answer to this question. The question is this. What is your picture of the good life? What is your picture of the good life? When you think about life as it should be, what do you think of? Who is around you? What do you see? What are you feeling? What are you experiencing? When you place in your mind's eye this picture of the good life. I think for many of us, the picture of the good life is painted with the brush of a peaceful world around us. You have these strokes of relational harmony with those who mean a lot to us. Maybe a bit of wealth and privilege. Deep internal feelings of joy and satisfaction. So 
next part of our picture is the good life, isn't it? Maybe there's a little bit of cycle and fame and acclaim in an area. Hey, that guy's really well known for this. That's part of our picture of the good life. Maybe a little bit of fun and pleasure. I don't know anybody who leaves out fun and pleasure out of their picture of the good life, right? This is a picture that we generate, we think about, we consider. Wherever we are now, it feels like the good life is, is just over there somewhere. I mean, surely if we could have all of these things I've been describing, we would fully have the good life, right? What would you add to that list today? Think about it for a moment. What would you add to the list? Whenever I think about this, I'm reminded of a good friend of mine. We've been friends for many years. His name's Dylan. And Dylan and I, we started doing this thing. Whenever we were experiencing a heightened moment in life, we we go like this because he would start saying things like, Catch it! Feel it! It's here! This is what we've been dreaming of! This is what we've been thinking of! These are those moments that we only dream of it and we're experiencing it right now. A whole bunch of us for a weekend go up to this wooden cabin in the forest and it's winter and it's cold and we make a fire and we're sitting around the fire and we're telling stories with some of our best friends all huddled around and we're having laughs and it's fantastic. And Dylan goes, Catch it! These are the moments we dream of in life. Another time, him and I, he's, he's into stand-up paddleboarding. He's trying to get me to get into it. And, and we're on the stand-up paddleboards, and it's a majestic day in Cape Town. It happens to be one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Come and visit us. Come on. Come. You're all invited. Big body in my house, right? So we we on we on the stand-up paddleboards, and we're kind of pushing through the waves, and it's beautiful, and the mountains are in the background, and it's a perfect day. And with one hand on a paddle and the other hand, he goes, this is it. We're feeling it. We're living it. The last time that Dylan did this was a couple of months ago. They moved out of our city. They're living in a small seaside village called Nice, and it's a beautiful place. And they bought their first ever house. They've got two kids. They didn't even have money for furniture. We're sitting on their lounge floor, and there's just a carpet. And we're all sitting on the carpet, and we've got picnic kind of paper plates out. They've literally just moved into their first ever house that they own. And as we're sitting here, and our kids are running around, and we're having a picnic on the carpet in this brand new house, he looks over to me, he doesn't say a word, he just goes, this is it. This is what you've been dreaming of. Kids, marriage, house, all of these things, beautiful things, and we love you. What does this look like for you? Think about it for a moment. What does it look like for you? Is it a relationship? Is it a job? Is it a promotion? Is it a holiday somewhere overseas, a beautiful package, some beach resort? And the reason why I start here today is because I believe we all have our own vision and dream of a good life. We have it in our minds, and we desperately want to slice of it, don't we? As I speak about money, I'm sure that I want to speak to you about this. And I want to start here because I realize that this is a difficult subject for many hearers. For us as preachers, we can preach. It's the Word of God. I have confidence in it. But it's, it's difficult for hearers sometimes when you talk about money. Why? Well, I believe the church has gone so wrong in speaking about money over 
over decades and, and centuries, the church has got it wrong. Often using manipulation and guilt and condemnation. Many times the motives of those bringing the message are very questionable. But I think a number of us, if we're honest, hearing messages about money are hardest for this reason. Because when we have our picture of the good life in mind, and anyone speaks about money, we realize that money is our primary enabler of that picture, of that being able to get a slice of the good life. And so we start to get nervous because we ask ourselves, what does this mean when it comes to me losing what I hold most dearly as a picture of what I want most for my life? Do we understand it? And this morning, I really want to come at this from a completely different angle. I want to come at this from that angle, as you saw in that title slide, if we can pick it up again. This is about what God wants for you, not from you. I say that with full confidence because I've lived and benefited experiencing what God wants me, wants for me in the area of financial freedom, and I want that for you today. So here's four more reasons why I think this is good for us to speak about. Firstly, because this is a discipleship issue. You call yourself a Christ follower, and this is an important issue for you. Why? Because think about this. This is actually important for everyone. If you're new in this context, and you thought, oh, as we said that, he's going to talk about money. All the rumors are true. That's all the church ever talks about is money. This is an unusual Sunday. Let me just say that. Come back again next week. They'll be talking about Friday, Friday, sorry. I'm in, in Dubai here, not Sunday, Friday. Unusual Friday. Come back next week. These guys will talk about fantastic things. And this is fantastic too because why? It's an important issue for us. For us. There are a thousand voices. Think about this week in your life. A thousand different voices have had an opinion about how you should spend your money. It's a discipleship issue. So many voices. Marketing and advertising and pressure from friends and family around what that good life looks like that you should be going after. Pressure to keep up with the Joneses. These are all voices that are trying to disciple us, shape us, form us around how we must see money. We are being formed by these voices in our culture around us. And as a disciple of Jesus, if that's what you would consider yourself this morning, we need to experience the counter-formation of God. Counter-formation of God that brings us into a fuller understanding of His freedom and His joy and His plan for our lives. Jesus said He wants us to be free from every entanglement. This is a discipline issue. Secondly, I want to talk to you about money today because this is also a contentment issue. This is one of the days, this is one of the days that I feel like God, Jesus is standing here, he's got a key for contentment. And to, to some today, he wants to give you the key to contentment. And he wants to allow you to come out of that jail of being discontent in your life. Contentment is the ability to enjoy what we have, the here and the now, to find God's peace and joy. Take one day at a time, not always be kind of longing for tomorrow. Not always driven by a sense of lack or hunger or desperation or a drive for more. That sounds really good, right? But it's not the world we live in. It's not the world we live in. One person said this about marketing. The aim of marketing is to steal your contentment and to sell it back to you at the price of a car. How does that work? It's so true. You walk into the shopping center and your jeans are just fine. But you see those jeans 
in the shop. And in that moment, you go, my life is not as it should be. Those things would make my life be more whole. Those things would make things be as they are. Maybe Jesus is looking at you, nah, not Jesus, that car, that promotion, that holiday, that whatever it is. But what happens is, in that moment, marketing has told you, your life is not as it should be without this product. But now, for $19.99 only, you can get that, the jeans, and your contentment back again. Yay! Right? Money is a contentment thing for many of us. And we are surrounded by discontentment being shoved in our face and sold back to us. Contentment sold back to us at the price of quality. Apologies to anyone in marketing. But here, listen to this. A while back, I heard about a study that was conducted globally in every different kind of level of socioeconomics. Every kind of level. Here's what we found. That almost all people in the world don't think that they have enough. No matter whether they're rich or poor, they don't think they have enough. That is almost a universal trait. But guess what? The second thing that they found out that is in common between almost all people through all levels of income in all places in the world is all people believe, almost all people believe, that if they just had 10% more, they would have enough. So whether they were rich or whether they were poor, just 10% was going to be enough. Do you know what that tells me? That it's got absolutely nothing to do with how much you have. It's got to do with contentment. And Jesus wants to bring us into this. The third reason is because the Bible has got some fantastic things to say about this. Jesus spoke about money, spoke about money a lot. A lot he spoke about it. Did you know that 16 out of 38 of the stories, parables that he told, were about money directly? We've got about 500 verses on prayer. Roughly two, uh, less than that when it comes to faith, but we've got 2,500 verses on money. Jesus had a lot to say about this. It seemed important to him, and I think it should be important to us. Jesus had some reasons why he spoke about it so much. But here's the fourth reason, and I think this is an important one, just as what, what Rob was saying just now before we pick up today's offering. I want to speak about this because I believe that if this church, Well of Life, is to become all that God wants this to become, we're going to have to settle some issues in this area. Settle some issues. God is wanting to use this church to be a blessing to its community, to the city, and to nations of the world. I believe that with all of my heart. God has given you guys an impartation of being able to bless, not just yourselves, but beyond yourselves. But if we're going to live in the fullness of that well of life, can I call you to settle some of these issues today? In fact, one of the most catalytic moments that happened in common ground history many years ago after a sermon not too dissimilar to this, a fantastic thing happened. A disproportionate amount, like almost everyone at the time, committed themselves to saying, we will every single month be a part of underwriting the mission of God taking care of the bills. We will, every single one of us, give a portion of our salaries to underwriting the mission that God's called us to. And then some people who've been what I like to call afflicted with wealth actually stepped up in a moment and said, actually, we want to, too much is given, much is required. The gift of generosity, Romans 12, gift of giving, be so generous in Romans 12. 
a bunch of people stepped up and said, we want to start more tests for a few things. We want to start more tests for ministries, for missions, and for mercy. And God gave disproportionately into those three areas, and it catalyzed our church into being a force for good in our city and beyond our city. I want that for this church. I want to see this church being a catalyst for good into the city that you guys are going to call and beyond. But it's going to take both of those things. It's going to take everyone saying, I'm in and I'm playing my part. It's going to take some going over and above because God has assisted you as well. And God has given you the Romans 12 gift of giving and He's called you to do so generously. That's why we're speaking about this today. But I spent 16 minutes telling you why I think it's important to think about it, why let's think about it. Turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to work through 14 verses, line by line. I want to thank Andy Stanley and Tim Keller, two guys who have helped me, been very helpful to me in getting to grips with this passage of Scripture. We're picking up here with Jesus, and it's, it's, it's Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he's speaking to the crowds, and he's speaking even to another group of Pharisees that are there with him. But we pick up where Jesus is teaching his disciples specifically what it means to see things the way God sees things. And Jesus is using these parables, these stories, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. And then Jesus continues in this passage. There's a bunch of Pharisees. These are the Jewish noblemen and teachers that are kind of there in the crowd. And it seems like in this story, Jesus wants to focus in on these guys something to them. So he continues to tell the next story, but he does so loud enough that they kind of hear what he's got to say. From verse 1 it says this, Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. It's just told us he's speaking to his disciples. But who do you think leans in in this moment? All of the disciples would have not kind of associated with the story of a rich man with a manager. But who in the crowd do you think had managers and were considered rich men? The Pharisees. Immediately, the Pharisees who were potentially kind of looking in on all the stories like this, they're leaning in. They're wanting to hear what Jesus has to say. Jesus continues. The Pharisees have got, he's now got their attention. He says this. So he called him in, and he asked him, what is this that I hear about you? Give an account for your management, because you cannot be a manager any longer. What had he done? He had wasted his boss's possessions. He was the manager. In, back in those days, it was like the COO and the CFO all together. Chief financial officer, chief operations officer, one person called the manager, and he'd been wasting his Boss's position. The boss calls him in. And he says to him, I want to see the spreadsheet. Help me. Give an account of what's going on here. He says to him, I'm giving you a notice period. We're wrapping things up. You're being quiet. Verse 3, the manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to dig. Okay, we get a picture of this guy. He's probably scrawny and short, not strong, can't dig, right? And he's ashamed, he's a proud man. 
and realizes that in this moment, he's going to get fired. And he's thinking to himself, you can see how he calculates himself. What can I do with this little bit of time, this little bit of opportunity that I still have left to set myself up for the future? And he asks, how do I use my notice period? How do I best use my notice period? And he comes up with a plan, verse 4. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will come, will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, good, take your bill, go down quickly and make it 450. Can you imagine the situation? Here's this manager guy, calls in the debtors and he says, how much? 900. <laughs> like that old thing. What do you think is happening to the, the debtor, the guy who's in debt to him? No way. You don't even know how I can ever help you. This is ridiculous. Right? I can imagine he's done that to him. Verse 7. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill. Make it 800. Again, the guy's like, what? No way. If I could ever help you, let me know. And before we see what happens next, let me point out the big key to this text that's just in this story. If you were the owner of this manager, how would you feel? How would you feel if you were the owner of this manager? I know, I'm thinking, this guy is terrible. I'm thinking, this guy, you want to get the mic? So he's thinking, well, I would be thinking, if this was my manager, I'd be thinking, this guy's a shocker. Not only has he messed me around already, now I've been about to fire him, and he quickly just goes and does all these backhanded, under-the-table little deals, and he's trying to benefit himself, right? This is a shocking manager. I know that's what I'm thinking. How dare he take what is not his and use it for personal benefit just like this, Right? you start to feel that righteous anger. He says you start to feel that, no, that's not right. You remember, cats, this is Jesus. He's done it again. He's caught me out. I walked right into that trap that he has set for me. Because as we think about this just a little bit longer, we start to think, do we know anyone else who's been given something else to steal on someone else's behalf? Do we know people who are stealing resources that are not their own? Do we know people that just use those resources for their own purposes and gain, rather than for fully for the purposes for which they've been entrusted? Maybe we should get this deep and sinking feeling that Jesus may be looking at our lives too. And we've walked into the trap. Jesus is the master storyteller. Jesus is speaking about our lives and he's saying, is this guy the only guy who's living in a notice period? This guy, the only guy who really has seen that another time will come where those resources are no longer available to him to steal. Jesus is welcoming us in. This is verse 8. 
we see the twist and turn of this story as Jesus tells it. He says this, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted truly. He commended the dishonored, honest manager. How many of us would have commended the manager? Not one, I can tell you that. Why? Because we all got pretty developed justice plans. That was wrong. Even though he did some clever stuff, it was still wrong, right? But the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted truly, truly. I'll be honest, when I saw that word truly, I thought it was like Scrooge McDuck, right? It was like he was being kind of just looking after himself. He was being dishonest. But actually, when you look at it, let, let's put up a list there quickly. The word shrewdly actually in the English dictionary is astutely, sharply, smartly, perceptively, discerningly, insightfully, wisely, cleverly. The manager is actually saying, this guy gave this some, I mean, the, 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 the owner guy is actually saying, this guy gave this some thought. He has actually been pretty wise about this. And the master commends him because he's taken this short little opportunity that he's had and he's used it in a way it's noticed here in a way that would benefit his future reality. And the master, who's a man of business, looks at this and goes, that looks so smart. This guy actually read the season pretty well. And he did good. He did good. Second thing we see here out of this story is, what would we be able to tell about this owner? Hey, money is not a big deal to him. Money is not. Does he even comment on the hundred gallons or whatever it was, 450 gallons and 200 bushels of wheat. Does he even comment on those things? No, not a big deal to him. Not a big deal. The big deal to him is the heart of what's happening here, the way the person viewed these resources. You can see Jesus is making some parallels here between this owner, this manager, the owner of all things, and us as stewards resources. He wants us to consider our lives too. We are just like this guy in a modest way, but similar behavior. There's a different reality that awaits us. He thinks we should be thinking more about being stewards of the time, the opportunity, and the resources that we have to make an eternal impact. At this point, the, the story, the story about the manager finishes. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. Jesus turns to the Pharisees. He turns to the Pharisees and he turns to the crowd and he turns to the disciples and he, he stares into their souls. He starts to teach them about how God views money differently to how we view it. Let's listen to him. There's four little specific things that I want to glean out of this passage. Firstly, he continues in verse 8, for the people of this world are more shrewd or astute or sharp or smart in dealing with their own kinds than are the people of the light. To be honest, I fully didn't understand that sentence when I first read it. I tried to get into it and I looked into what it means and I listened to some others on the subject. But on further investigation, you know what that actually is trying to point out to us? It points out that if you just live for this life, you most probably give it a little bit more thought, a little bit more intentionality. How do I maximize squeezing all the juice out of this life, out of my financial stewardship, out of my preparations, out of my intentionality. If you are the kind of person who's actually living for an eternal reality, which is going to be way better, maybe you're not as intentional about this reality. 
what Jesus is saying here. And he continues, and he makes his point, and he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Again, you've got to understand what Jesus is getting at here. And he was the master, and speaking confusingly, right? And you really had to think about this, and the guys who were actually sitting there listening were like, I'm not sure what he just said. Do you understand what he said? I don't understand. And forever in Scripture, we keep seeing him going, Jesus, what are we actually trying to get at over there? Where is he running with you? But when you look at this, what is he trying to say? He's saying that there are different kinds of wealth. Jesus points out there, use worldly wealth. And then he says, speak about being welcomed into eternal dwellings. He's pointing out the kind of eternal economy and a worldly economy. And Jesus is saying that we need to use a worldly economy to have an eternal impact. Use our worldly economy to have an eternal impact. Jesus is saying in these verses, when we die and go to heaven, are there going to be any people on that side of the story applauding your efforts, applauding how what you were given was stewarded in such a way that it's making a difference for the ever coming reality and eternity? Who's going to be standing on that side applauding your efforts? Thank you. Thank you that what you did impacted me in Sri Lanka. Thank you that what you did impacted me in Athens, Greece, or South Africa, or Zimbabwe. I saw that whole list thing. Thank you that what you did had an eternal impact on my life. Jesus is saying, who's going to be on that side of the story applauding, applauding your worldly economy being used for eternal this is the first thing that Jesus wants to pick up. Financial stewardship is a tool. It's a tool for a heavenly king. Should lead us to ask, how are we using the tool that we've been given to serve God and His purpose? And don't kill me. I don't say this by way of bragging or example, just by way of how much I believe this. Every single Sunday since I've been here, every single day, I've tied at least 10% of the facts. And every single time there's been an opportunity in the context of our church to give to something over and above a mercy project or missions or something like that, I've given something. I settled that issue right from the beginning of the year. I said I'm signing up to a heavenly curriculum that has got heavenly economy attached to that. Surely this needs to be a settled issue for me. And to be honest, sometimes it's been way less, and other times it's been quite a bit more, but every time it's been so. Because this is a settled issue in the economy of God for me. Let's continue to the text. Verse 10, Jesus says this. He says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. I love that picture. It's got nothing to do with how much you earn. It's got nothing to do with how much you have. It's got nothing to do with any of those things. What's God saying? I'm going to watch the motivations. I'm going to watch the hearts. Because, man, if you can do it a lot with 10 dirhams, imagine what you could do with 10 million dirhams. And if you can you can do poorly with 10 dirhams, imagine how poorly you can do with 10 million dirhams. I play golf sometimes in Peter. And I was chatting to one of the guys at the front of the board side. And he said, the longer the stick is, the further you can go off sides and out of bounds when you hit it hard. If you hit with a shorter stick and you're just going short and you're hitting a little bit off, 
how fast it would be. It's a little bit off. But when you hit it with a long driver and it's a little bit off, how far off is it? It's quite a bit off. And the principle is the same. When you get it right with little, you'll most probably end up getting it right with much. But it's guaranteed if you can't get it right with little, then you won't get it right with much. Jesus continues. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Again, Jesus is pointing out the difference between worldly wealth and that heavenly wealth that will come. You can imagine at this point, Jesus, the master teacher, has everyone leaning in, so desperate to understand what are these true riches that you might be trusted to. So he continues, if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Jesus is not just saying, money is too for a test. Finances are too for a test. He's also saying, if money, I mean, it's a tool for a task. Money is also a test. Jesus is using it to check our hearts. He wants to know, will we use this tool correctly? Will we pass this stewardship test? Jesus continues in verse 13, If no one can serve two masters, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Many times I used to think, the greatest competitor that Jesus was kind of pointing out is that you cannot serve, you know, hitting one and loving the other. You're serving two masters. One is the devil, and the other one is Jesus. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. He's speaking about money as a potential master in our lives that orders us around and that commands our time and energy and runs our calendar. And that's true. Many of us as good Christians will push away when we see the work of the devil in our lives. That's evil, that's wrong, that's when the tentacles of consumerism start to wrap their tentacles around our lives. How many of us identify that in our life? Jesus says we've got to be careful. It's very true. I think it's real in all of our lives. And Jesus goes strong after it. Why does Jesus go strong after it? Remember that word financial freedom? Jesus is the one who wants us to be ultimately free. So he uses money as a tool in our lives, but he also uses it as a test. Here's the third thing. Take two because I'm a preacher. It says this. Christian financial stewardship is also a trademark of being a true Christ follower. Where is your devotion? Where does your devotion lie? He says you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Here's a little litmus test for us. Our children have to stumble across the spreadsheet of our lives, our finances and our resources. They have to ask us some questions and say, Mommy, Daddy, how does that work? What is this? What is that? What would that tell them about the value system in our weekly life? What would that tell them? For me, that's always been a thing. I realize that as a father, God has called me to not just ruin these young lives for the ordinary man and to open their eyes to the wonders of a different world and a king who sits on the throne. 
a world that needed their emergency rates. Obviously, for that guy, it's clear he needed it. So help him and be, to be equipped soldiers in the world we find ourselves. But it's a great thing. Even when Bibi tells his story, this is a trademark of you serving God in that moment. So how do we respond to a talk like this? How do we respond? And I think there's a few ways. But there's one more tier of stewardship that Jesus delineates from this passage. Found in response to what the Pharisees have got to say. Listen to verse 14. I think we find ourselves not responding with the Pharisees. It says this. The Pharisees who loved money. They heard all of this, but they were sneering at Jesus. Ah, who are you? What do you think of who Jesus? Maybe some of you are sneering at me. South African, that's definitely good time. Probably not London, right? He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. The problem is your hearts. They reject his teaching. Jesus suggests they're going to justify their spiritual in the eyes of others. Maybe who knows? They're going to say things to each other like, Well, you know that I would steward my finances a bit better, but I've got quite a lot going on, so it's going to be quite hard for me to do that. Maybe we can point back to some other scenario where they would say, ah, I was generous five years ago. So most probably I'm going to give this one a stick. Jesus knows that. He says, you're going to justify yourselves in the eyes of others. He goes hard after them again because he wants them to live in the freedom that he has for them. And he says, don't do this. Don't do this. He says, don't be so good at talking yourselves out of spiritual generosity because do not be do the same. God is saying this is the last tier. Stewardship, financial stewardship, it's a thermometer to our hearts. It's a thermometer to our hearts. And this is the big one. It will quite accurately give us a read on our followership of Christ. If we are being joyfully generous, that'll tell us something about the condition of our hearts. If we are being sour and stingy, that'll tell us something about the condition of our hearts. Jesus, the master storyteller, just goes after us again. Do you know how I know this is still true today? Because rich people aren't generous. Poor people aren't generous. Generous people are generous. It's still true of our hearts today. Financial stewardship is a tool for a heavenly task. It's a test for our faith, of our faithfulness. It's a trademark of our witness. It's a thermometer for reading the temperature of our hearts. I want to bring us in some anger. It's my hope that coming out of today, we would all decide to become better financial stewards. Why? Because this is what Jesus has for us. And I've never met anyone in the final seasons of their lives who wishes they were more stingy, and wishes that they gave less to the poor, and wishes that they were more reckless with their money. But I have sat at the, sat at the bedside of many people in their dying days look back on their lives going, I got it wrong. I got it wrong. I wish I'd lived my life with a greater view of the kingdom. I wish I'd lived myself into a greater uh, opportunity for impact. I don't want us to be those people like we see the poor financial stewards here that Jesus kind of speaks to. And I don't want us to go about this the wrong. But let me land with this story. It's the story how I learned to dance. So I grew up in America until I was 10. But I moved from America straight into 
Wilmington, which is a very Afrikaans country area just outside the city of Durban in South Africa. I was the only English boy in the whole grade. And the rest of these guys were big Afrikaans guys. Most of them came from wine farms and, and other farms in the area, grain farms in the area. And they used to do this thing about once a quarter called a sucky dance. It's kind of like a country dance. And I remember going into high school. It's my first year of high school. And I was doing what first year and high school guys do, hanging out in the bathroom with all my friends. And I remember they were all dancing in the school hall. And, and I was in the bathroom. We were just hanging out, telling stories and whatever. And then one of the matric, the, the kind of final year students, the seniors came in. His name was Ati. And Ati was the captain of the rugby team, the first rugby team. He was a monster. And Ati's little sister was a friend of mine. I've been to their home a few times. And Ati knew me. And he said to me, Ryan, why aren't you dancing? So I said, no, man, that dancing looks stupid, right? He said, no, can you dance? I said, no, 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 but I don't want to learn. And then he said words that were such a game changer. He said, I'll get music to teach you to dance. Now, to put it in perspective, that was such a game changer because why? Lisa was Miss Huguenot. She was the most beautiful girl in the school. And in one of those stereotypical teenage movies, she was dating the captain of the rugby team, right? And I think said, I'll get Lisa to teach you dance. And I said, cool, I'm in. Let's do it. And what happened is he walked me over in front of all my friends and all these other guys like, oh, no ways. Junior in high school, she's a matric senior, and he walks me over to him. He says, Liesl, please won't you teach Ryan how to dance? He has no clue. And so I walked over, she took my hand, she put one hand in my hand, she put your other hand here on my hip, at which point I almost fainted. And then she said, Okay, you come a little bit closer, and then she started to teach me the steps. And it was one step this way, and then one step this way, and then this funny little two step shimmy thing. And, and she, she taught me all these steps. And guess what happened? We tried. And for the first, like, two minutes, all I was doing was going, step, down, step, this way, step, that, whatever. I kept stepping on her toes. And, and pretty much all she was doing was staring at the top of my head because I was so focused on not stepping on her toes. And it was awful. And after about two minutes of this, she stopped. And she took both of my hands and she wobbled them like this. And she said, just then she said words that a sanitist boy will never forget in his whole life. She said, just listen to the music. Look me in the eyes. Feel my body against your body. And let's dance. And so we did. And for at least that weekend, I was the hero of my whole grade, right? But why do I tell you this story? Because I tell you what, if you are going to treat financial freedom like a do this, don't do this, I must do this, I mustn't do this, all you're going to get is you're going to get God, the living creator of all things, staring at the top of your head, a little bit bummed that you're stepping on his toes. But if you, if you can hear the words of the heart king of heaven today, when he says to you, listen to the glorious music of the gospel, that 
one life was given for all. Lay it down so that true life can be picked up. Listen to that gospel music and let it motivate you. And if you can find yourself feeling the strength of being knitted into community, a community that is called to be on mission to change the world, you too can be a part of the purpose. You too can see the glorious goodness of what Christ Jesus was trying to teach these guys, that there is a freedom that is available to us when we deny a worldly economy and we dive into a heavenly economy and we give ourselves to living fully for King Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, again, I feel my heart stirred today to be one that would live for an agenda that is higher than anything that is worldly on earth at all. Lord, I pray for men and women in this room today that you would stir hearts, stir hearts, every single one of them, to not just do this and don't do that, live by the rule books of Jesus. But may they hear the glorious music of the gospel. May they not King Jesus in their lives. And may they fully give themselves to being part of your God's purpose. May this church live in a financial freedom with the full set of keys that is available from heaven has released everybody from the jails of constraints and debt and subscribing to lifelong living under the whip of the economy. God, may you set people free from their financials today. May you set them free to live in the freedom of a heavenly economy. God, I pray that you would release the gift of giving. Romans 12, God, release that gift upon this church today. May men and women who have that gift do so generously as we call them Lord. Jesus, may every single one of us sign up to be part of your team, playing our parts. May we not live with a loose financial restriction and restraint around us. May we live in the fullness of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.